Good morning, Integrity Church. I've never had anybody try to take the podium before I even started speaking. Thanks, Adam Mater. Um, I hope it's going to be well enough into the scripture you'll feel the need to take the podium away from me at some point uh, today. My name is uh, Chris Wilson. I'm the church planting resident here at Integrity. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, This morning, we're going to continue uh, our look at uh, John's letter, appropriately titled uh, 1 John. Uh, I could hang out with the people who named biblical books because they're as original as I am. Uh, So it was the first letter uh, that John wrote. Before we get uh, started this morning, if I could just be real honest with you, after the events of the past week, like I'm I'm weary of heart and of soul. Um, Just for... I think for maybe the first time in my life, a deep longing for Christ to return settled in. Because this is, unfortunately, the world that we live in. And so we have an opportunity. Now, in in the face of evil and in the face of violence, and the pace has been set by our brothers and sisters at Emmanuel AME to stand in a courtroom and offer forgiveness and plead with the killer to turn to Christ. And so this morning as we pray to get into the scripture, uh, we also pray with our brothers and sisters in mind that they would be encouraged, that they would be strengthened in the gospel, and that we would look for ways here in Greenville to be intentional to start opening our mouths and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone we come in contact with. There are no laws that can be passed. There's no Supreme Court ruling that will change the hearts and lives of men and women. There's one thing, and the church alone has the answer to it, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to be your sons and your daughters. And to be a part of your body. And so we are a small representation of your body here in Greenville. But we grieve with your body throughout the world today. Not only for our brothers and sisters who lost their lives in Charleston. But also for those who today have lost their lives for being faithful witnesses to you. In hostile and threatening environments. And so, Father, we confess and we repent of how often we allow a sense of complacency to rob our sense of urgency to share the gospel. And so, God, would you help us to do that? Would your spirit move in our hearts and in our lives and our body of faith here at Integrity Church in Greenville so that the gospel would reach our city, so that the gospel would reach our state and ultimately our nation and the world? Would we be willing to forsake our comfort and go? And Father, we'll only go to the degree that we're assured that we are in you and in you. You have promised us full, complete, total victory through the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And so it's him that we trust. It's him that we follow. It's him that we desire above anything this world could offer. And so, Father, will we be faithful? Will we be found faithful even to the point of death? knowing that in every situation and in every circumstance, you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us, but you're a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And so, Father, we love you. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in our time together this morning. Amen.
Now I need water. First John five thirteen through 15 is where we will be uh, this morning. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, I have a, a, a confession uh, to make that may surprise some of you. Some of you probably thought this the case, and I hate to uh, burst your bubble of opinion about me. Uh, I wasn't always perfect or a believer. Um, there was a time in life where I didn't know Christ and uh, the way I lived my life I reflected it, especially as a young kid. And so um, one time, and I cannot remember the occasion uh, of why we, I thought I deserved baseball cards. Um, but growing up before adults ruined baseball cards, um, for us, it was always a big deal to be collecting uh, baseball cards. And so I had either made a good grade or not gotten a fight with my sister for longer than two consecutive days. For whatever reason, we had gone out, uh, my mom and I, shopping, and we were either at a Big Lots or a Maxway uh, in Lenore, North Carolina. And I thought I was due baseball cards, and we didn't buy baseball cards. And so we get out to the car, and I'm old enough to ride in the front seat, um, and so I'm waiting on my mom to unlock the doors Um, And she asked me what's the matter because I looked apparently pretty angry. And um, I didn't say, well, you didn't get me cards. I just looked, don't ever do this. I looked my mom square in the face and I said, my problem is you're a liar. (laughs) Luckily, luckily I was standing across the car from her. If looks could kill, I would have been dead. And I thought, well... Thank God for this car. And then I forgot that when you sit down inside said car, beside your mom, that distance shrinks incredibly. And then I got uh, what we like to call the righteous backhand. Um, As I got into the car and as I got settled, unbeknownst to me, her arm was waiting and it just connected with my face. And to this day, I have not once uttered to my mom that I thought she was anything less than awesome um, for fear of that backhand being resurrected. My, my problem in that moment was that I, have, I felt like something that had been promised to me, my mom, who was supposed to love me and supposed to want me to be happy at all times, was holding out on me. And so I retaliated by the only way I knew how. I didn't have the means to go out and buy myself baseball cards. When you're eight years old, you have no income. I I was fully and solely dependent on her to deliver on the very thing she had said that I could have, and then she didn't do it for me, and I got mad. And John, today, as we unpack these three verses, John is going to help us see how to rightly pray so that we don't often end up like I did with my mother concerning baseball cards when it comes to our prayer life to our Father in heaven, where we don't feel like he's holding out on us and he's withholding from us to the point that we get mad at him because we think that he loves us or we thought if he really loved us, he would do this. John's going to help ground us in how to best pray so that we are assured to get the gifts that God wants to give to us. And so in 1 John 5, 13 through 15, we read the following. 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And so John lays out in these three verses this idea of if we know that we are in Christ and we know eternal life is ours, it should relate to a certain level of confidence when we pray to God our Father so that we see God the Father answer our prayers. So we're going to just walk through these three verses unpack what it is that John is saying, and hopefully leave with a renewed sense of purpose and passion to what is most often referred to as an area where most Christians would like to improve, namely their prayer life. And so John writes in 1 John five thirteen, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so finally, after four plus chapters of John saying seemingly the same thing over and over and over and over again to us, he finally gives us the main reason for writing all of this down, for sending this letter to the church, for encouraging them in the gospel. And it is this, that they would know that they have eternal life. So often today when you talk to people who profess to be Christians, most people will say, yeah, I'm a believer. I just hope it all works out in the end. Or they say, well, I'm not sure if I'm a believer, but I'm going to live like I am in hopes that maybe I will be at the end of life. What John writes and what John contends for in 1 John 5.13 is that you would have a settled confident assurance that you are in Christ and you have eternal life. That is the sole purpose for him digging out the parchment and the ink and putting these words to paper is so that everyone who would hear that letter read in the first century, those of us who would read it here in the 21st century would know that we can have confident assurance of our salvation and our eternal life. And how do we do that? How do we know that? It's by constantly putting yourself to the test that John has laid out in the first four chapters of checking how well you love God and love others and how well you're serving and how well you are really embodying and then living out the gospel that shows and displays fully or as full as possible as you continue to grow in your love for Christ and others, you see progress in your life. You see the inevitable results of being someone who has been changed by the gospel. And so John writes that he wants them to be confident that they know, because in this very same letter, he's given them tests and ways to measure themselves so that they could settle the question once and for all in their heart and in their mind. This also, how John ends and wraps up his letter in 1 John five thirteen, echoes the way he wrapped up his gospel, the gospel of John. If you flip over John uh, chapter 20, 30 through 31, same guy writing, John says this as his uh, kind of closure to uh, the gospel. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John writes his gospel for one purpose. He writes his first letter or his first epistle for another purpose. The purpose of the gospel of John was to convince you that Christ was who he said he was, that he was the savior of the world, and that you would put your full faith and your full trust and your full confidence in him alone for salvation. And so John writes first to encourage everyone to wrestle with and answer the question of who Christ is. And John wraps up his gospel by saying that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you could have life in his name. And so then when he comes back to 1 John, and when we read through 1 John, the same guy is writing to those who have now put their faith in Christ To assure them that that faith is valid and sincere and authentic. Because what John knew to be true was this. To the degree that you are unconvinced of where you actually stand with Christ. Is the degree to which you will be stunted in your growth spiritually. So often we say, you hear even in church, even at integrity, I want to go deeper. I want to know more about who God is. And for a lot of you, the reason you want to do that is you're looking for some deeper assurance that you're actually in Christ. And there's no depth of Bible study or extra books that you can read that will help answer that question for you. John says you test yourself by the way that you live your life. And if you want to be effective, if you want to leverage all of your life for the sake of the gospel, you have to become convinced that the gospel is true of you. Or else every time you share it, every time you try to live in light of the gospel and you're not convinced of it, it doesn't become a, it doesn't become a sincere showing of a love for God and a love for others. It becomes a thinly veiled, selfish way to try to either convince others that you are a believer or to try to convince God that he should in fact save you. John says that's not the best possible way to live out your Christian life. The best possible way to grow and to mature in your love for God and in your love for others is to be convinced and know that you are in Christ and you have eternal life. And one of the main ways that we stunt ourselves in growing spiritually when we cannot answer this question with certainty for ourselves is in our prayer life. And so John, knowing that and inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this in verse 14. And this is a confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So John is quick to unpack for us the main reason that we have to be settled and assured in our faith. And it is primarily so that we would be confident in God to go to him and pray. And pray confidently knowing that God himself hears us. How many times do we just let the simple reality of the miracle of God hearing our prayers settle into our hearts and into our lives? Like comprehend the miracle that if we were all right now at one time begin to pray separately and out loud, you wouldn't know what three other people in the room are saying. 
And God would hear every single prayer of every believer in this room. So often we rush past the first miracle of prayer, which is that God even hears us in the first place. And we demand the miracle that we can see, namely our answer to our prayers. John says, we have a confidence in him that if we ask, and we're going to come back to this, if we ask according to his will, he hears us. But the good news is that even if you are in Christ and your prayer is not fully aligned with his will, because he is your loving father, he hears you. And so John says, you have to have a settled confidence in yourself and where you stand with Christ if you're going to pray. And pray well and pray in a God-willed, God-honoring way. But John isn't the only New Testament writer to deal with the concept or the idea of praying firmly and praying rightly. If you have your copy of the scriptures, flip over with me uh, to James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 5 through 8. James, in his epistle, is writing to encourage others to not let their faith be for nothing, but to put their faith actively to work. And so in James, James actually echoes the words that John writes in 1 John 5, 14. In in James 1, 5 through 8, we'll start reading verse 5. James says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So you first read James 1, 5 through 8. Most often we go, well, then I've never got a chance to have my prayers heard. Because we always default to there's a chance God may not answer this the way that I want him to answer it. So we always pray with just a touch of doubt more often than not in our minds and in our hearts. James says, if there's even the slightest hint of doubt that God is not capable of doing what it is that you're asking him to do, you don't deserve God answering your prayer because on the surface that sounds harsh. But James' heart in this is he wants your prayer life to match your confessed life so that if you are willing to trust God through Christ by the indwelling Holy Spirit for your eternal life, then why would you doubt him in the things that you are praying for? For James, it's not a matter of some unattainable perfection. It's a matter of integrity through what you say you believe and then how you practice that belief through prayer. And so James says, when you ask, don't let, to the degree that you're capable, pray that the Holy Spirit will guard your mind from doubt so that you would ask confidently. And it backs up beautifully what John writes in 1 John five fourteen that when we know that we have eternal life, We have a confidence in God to pray to him. And if we pray according to his will, he will hear us. And so James provides a better, more fuller understanding that when we pray, once we've settled who we are in Christ and 
the fact that we are sons and daughters, then we pray with full boldness and full confidence that God will hear us. And if it is prayed in a manner that is God honoring and according to God's will, he will answer. And so James helps us to better understand that it makes no sense for us to profess Christ as Lord and then move into living out the rest of our life through reading scripture and through prayer, the two primary ways we grow spiritually and always be at a consistent level of doubt in our lives that we never learn to trust God fully, even in our prayer life. And so James goes on in James 4, the end of verse 2 and verse 3, he goes on to help us better understand again what John is writing in 1 John 5, 14. James writes and says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so for both James here in his letter and in 1 John, before we get to asking rightly, their first primary motive was to get the people who would hear the letter read into a consistent pattern of praying in their life. That we would be willing to honestly talk to God about what we need and how we need him in our life. We, Kristen and I, have been married. It will be four years in September. Um, and we still work on this. And maybe some of you who have been married longer than four years can tell us if it always is uh, the case. We have this uh, thing where one of us will think about what we want to do for the day. And we never communicate it to the other one. And then the other one, so let's say my day is I want to wake up. I want to go to Panera, Big Shock. I want to get some coffee. I want to read, come home, relax just a little bit. Then maybe not do a whole lot else the rest of the day. (laughs) Maybe that's just a good Saturday. I don't know. But I I don't ever communicate that to her. And so my wife says, hey, what are, your, what are your plans for today? I don't really know. Okay, well, I wanted to go uh, look for baby stuff, and I wanted to get lunch, and then I wanted to go look for more baby stuff, and then I wanted to get dinner, and then I'll come back home and look at all the baby stuff we just bought. Um, and I'm left having to be, I can choose at that moment to be frustrated with her, or I can go along with her, and I have to be willing at some point to say, that really wasn't what I wanted to do. But if I don't communicate to her what it is that I want to do, or what it is that I would like to do with her, she can't be held at fault for doing something opposite or completely away from what it is that I initially wanted to do as her husband. And what James is arguing is he's saying, so many times... You, you just don't have because you don't ask. Listen, thinking about what you want God to do in your life, just thinking about it is not the same as verbalizing it to God through the act of prayer. And I think if we were honest across the room in here, a lot of us fall into that temptation where we think, I would really like to see God grow my patience. Don't ever pray that. I'm kidding. Pray it, but be ready. We say, 
in our minds, we don't engage in prayer. We don't make our petition known to God. We think, well, God knows me. God knows everything. He knows this thought even before I thought it. So I don't know why I'm thinking it, but I'm not. And so we never take the step to be open and honest and vulnerable with God to ask that he would work in our lives. And so maybe this morning, the biggest hindrance to your prayer life is that all you're doing is thinking about what you would like to pray and never getting around to making your prayers and your requests known to God. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. When we humble ourselves, when we submit to God, and when we ask for what is on our heart and on our mind, he will hear and he will answer. And so first, you just got to begin to pray. And then once you start praying, then you learn that prayer isn't primarily about us. And that's why James says, what James gives us as the second reason why so often our prayer lives languish. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We live in an entitled society. We live where we think we deserve the very best of whatever's the newest and the best and the next. And prayer is a sledgehammer to every bit of the sense of entitlement that we drink in every day from the culture around us. Because prayer demands that I don't start with me, but that I start with the God of heaven and earth. I start with addressing my father. It's how Jesus himself taught us to pray in the model prayer, our father who art in heaven. And so the thing that we have to begin to own as we start to pray, as we start to share our heart and our minds and our longings and our desires with our father We have to share all of it, and we have to know that some in there is going to be requests that, if we're really honest, are just for our own selfish pursuits and desires, and he reserves the right to say no to every one of those. He doesn't, sometimes because he loves us, and sometimes he answers those prayers that are for ourselves so that he could better expose the sin in our life to bring us to a point of confessing and repenting. And so sometimes he does answer the prayers that are for selfish gain and for wrong motives and passions to further bring the sin in our life to the surface so that we will be broken and convicted and pray confessing and repenting of our sin. But both James and John would agree that there is a way to pray. There is a way to pray that honors God. And it is a prayer that is not primarily focused on our own sinful passions and desires. But it is prayer that is primarily focused on the will of God. And so when we think about the will of God, most often in most circles, the will of God is some weird out there thing that nobody's really sure of what it is or how to get to it. And so we spend all of our time running around wondering where God's will is and how we fit in to God's will. James and John write and say, no, praying in God's will is actually knowable to every believer and it's possible for every believer and it should be practiced by every believer. 
And so what does it look like for us to pray in accordance with God's will? It means that we have to begin to pray for the things that God has promised to those who are his sons and daughters in Scripture. Scripture has to be the baseline for praying according to God's will. Your prayer life, I would dare say, would increase greatly and you would see greater answer to prayer if more of our prayer life was centered around praying the promises of God in Scripture back to him to be effective for our life and for our family and for our friends then it would be running around wasting all of our breath in prayer that God would just keep us from uncomfortable circumstances and situations. Maybe what we're doing is we treat God like everybody has that one friend who every time you sit down to talk to them, you ask them how they are and 45 minutes later they shut up. And throughout the whole thing, they never ask how you are. They never ask how you're doing. They never care to know you. All they care about is that there's somebody there that they can unload on. And I'm guilty of going to God in that same way. Not to pray according to his will. Not to pray because I ultimately love my father. But I go to him because I have somebody I can unload on. And I don't care to know him. I don't care to know his heart. I don't care to know his word. What I want him to do, if I'm really honest, is I want him to prove over and over and over and over again in my life, outside of the cross, that he loves me and that he is for me by answering some of the craziest prayers in the world. John says, James says, you have to pray according to God's will. And so there are some things, in all honesty, We don't know what the will of God is for a situation or a circumstance. I don't know if every person we pray for will be healed. I don't know if every person we pray for to become a believer will become a believer. I don't know if every time I've prayed for somebody to get a job, they've got the job at that moment that I was praying for, or they've got the promotion, or they've got the raise, or heaven forbid they find a husband or a wife. But that is all of our prayers are centered around prayers that we just don't know the answer to. And we want God in that moment to commit to us that he will answer it the exact way that we pray. Which in reality, when we approach prayer that way, when we approach it not from a God-willed way, but from my environment and my circumstances, what I really do in that moment and why it's so offensive sometimes to God how we rush in and pray in this way is that I put myself in the place of God and I claim that I know the best possible outcome for a situation and I begin to become demanding that he answer my prayer in that way. And that is a sinful attitude in my heart that I have to repent of because that is not praying according to the will of God. But when we do pray for those things where we are uncertain of the outcome because scripture doesn't tell us what the outcome will be, When we pray, we pray with hope and we pray expectantly that God would answer it through healing or through a job or through salvation. We pray with hope that he would do those things, but we also pray with this caveat in our mind. We pray 
in those moments where we don't know the specific discerned will of God, we pray for what we think, from our perspective, is the best case scenario. Because that's all we can do, limited by time and our understanding and our knowledge. In that moment, we pray for what we believe in our own minds to be the best case scenario. And we pray these things to God with hope and with confidence that because he sent his son and he rose from the dead and he sits at the right hand and we are now in his family, we pray with confidence that a God who can resurrect from the dead, there's nothing in this world that he cannot do if he so chooses. And so we pray with that hope and that confidence. And then we trust that whatever God does, it is an overflow of his character. And though it may not be what we wanted and we may, it may not be what we desired and it may not be what we thought was best because it is from the overflow of his character, we know that ultimately the answer he gives us is loving and good. And that settles it for us in that moment. And so that's how we pray when we don't know specific situations of how God would or would not act. We don't just say, well, it's not scripture. I can't pray for it. You're going to be a terrible friend. Remind me to never come to you for prayer. Oh, Chris, that's not in scripture. I can't pray for you. Um, I would appreciate your prayers. So we pray for those things, but we don't pray with the settled assurance that what we've prayed for is going to happen because scripture doesn't give us a direct answer that God is compelled or obligated to act in that way. So we pray hopeful and we pray expectant and then we trust his character that he's loving and good. And how do we trust his character? Because we constantly draw our eyes back to the cross to his very own son who he sent to die in our place. And then we get around to asking according to God's will. And so when we pray God's will, and this sounds so elementary and it sounds so simple, but it's so profound and it's so true. Pray about what God commands that he would give his people in scripture. That is true for us in the new covenant under the blood of Christ. You pray for those things that God has promised to give his people. If you go read every prayer that Paul wrote to the churches he corresponded with, I don't know out of any situation in all those letters where he prayed for anything other than this, that they would continue to experience and know the love of God more deeply and more truly and more powerfully in their life and that they would continue to express that love in the care and the way that they love their brothers and sisters in the faith. And so we pray those things back to God that they would be true of us today. They weren't just true for first century believers. They're true of us today. And so if we want God ultimately to hear a prayer that he would answer immediately, we pray scripture. So what does that look like for us? We pray for forgiveness of sins, 1 John 1, 9. We pray for our sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. We pray for joy in all circumstances, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. We pray for our enemies, Luke 6, 27 through 31. We pray for a deeper capacity to love God and others. Ephesians 3:14 through 21. 
We go back and we invest our lives in studying the scriptures so that we know the very things that God has promised to be true so that we can pray according to his will. And the word and the phrase that John uses when he says that God hears a prayer that is prayed according to his will is that in the minute that God hears that prayer that is according to his will, he has already answered it. We may not see the full answer to that prayer immediately in our own life. Time and us being restricted by time and space means that it may be a delayed time until we see the full answer to the ability to love our enemies or the full answer to our continued growing sanctification. But in that moment when God hears a prayer prayed back to him that is a promise that he made for his sons and daughters in scripture, he does not hesitate. It is his great joy to answer you in that moment. And so the reality that we face is this. God is not slow to answer our prayer. Maybe we've been slow to pray the things that God would have us pray more regularly and more forcefully for our own life. And so John says this in 1 John five fifteen. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. It's a settled deal for John. John doesn't hint. He doesn't waver. He doesn't back off. He says, when you pray according to God's will, God hears, and you know already that you have the answer to that request. We still pray, we still ask, we still plead for God to work in our lives in those ways. But we know when we pray for those things that are in Scripture, we know and we can trust and we can believe that God has already answered our prayer. How amazing is that? That there are prayers that you can pray today that it would be God's great joy and great pleasure to answer. Would it change the way that you approached prayer going forward if you knew that there were prayers that you could pray right now that God would begin to answer immediately in your life? For John, it seems to make all the difference in the world because that's his great encouragement in writing this whole letter is that you would know who you are in Christ, you would be confident in it, and then you would start to take God's word as his word and pray that word back to him and watch God work and move in your life. But when we pray according to God's will, when we pray according to what is laid out in Scripture, the reality of of the situation is this. You're not going to be the hero of your group of Christian friends. Because he's not going to answer all the flashy prayers that would elevate you to a point where people start to look at you with awe and wonder. No, when you pray according to God's will and he's happy to answer, it is a process of the continual breaking us down to build us up in the very character and image and likeness of Christ. And that is the most loving thing that he can do for us today or any day. And so when we pray, we pray knowing that he hears us. So as we, as we pray, as we consider our life of prayer today, are we praying more often than not with an eye toward loving God and others 
Is that the primary focus and aim of most of our prayer life is an increased love for God and an increased love for others? Or is the primary aim of our prayer life an easier life for me, a more comfortable life for me, a more satisfying life for me right here, right now? And so as we pray, we have to ask ourselves that question. Or are we caught up in trying to wrap our selfishness in religious phrases in hopes of pulling one over on God? John says we pray because we are so confident of who we are in Christ that we want to see God answer prayers on our behalf. And so we pray what he said is true of us in Scripture. J.R.W. Stott reminds us of the process being worked in us during the maturing of our prayer life as he writes the following. Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme, your will be done. So just as John encouraged us in 1 John 2, that we should see victory over sin in our lives as we progress in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel. So here John encourages us that as believers, we should see progressive, increased, answered prayer in our lives as we continue to have our our wills molded and shaped by the will of God so that our prayers flow more naturally in alignment with what God would do both in our lives and in our families and in our world. So we must be committed because prayer is a process. It is a long, slow, frustrating process for most of us. It is a process that requires sacrifice. It requires a steadfastness. And it requires a willingness to give up things that provide cheap and easy entertainment to get ourselves before the God of the universe. So, will we be committed today as a body of believers at Integrity, Tur- at Integrity Church through the starts, through the stops, the frustrations, and sometimes the seeming unresponsiveness of God? Will we be steadfast and will we pursue prayer until we begin to experience answered prayer in our own lives? Because when it is all said and done, the reason we pray is not to have prayer answered. The primary reason we pray is because we love our Father in heaven. Pray that that would be the case for us at Integrity today. Let us pray. Father, we love you and we are grateful for you and for your coming for us and your son, Christ. And God, you...